Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. My name is Sarah Brown and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Chris Collins. We both work at Garden Organic, bringing you tips and advice each month on how to grow the organic way. This month, it's all about seed sowing. It's that time of the year to start thinking about it and our aim is to help you get perfect results every time. And because the weather's so uninviting, we stay indoors to hear Chris sharing tips on propagating houseplants. What better way to plan a Valentine's Day present and it's a million times more sustainable than imported red roses. Our guest this month has a special tale to tell as she was gardener to the future King of England. Debs Goodenough shared with Chris her early gardening history from a farm in Canada to studying at Kew and then the joys of working for Prince Charles. The number of times I got told off by the chauffeurs because his Royal Highness would be taking extra time in the garden telling me he, you know, things that he wanted to have done. But before we start, I just want to thank our brilliant sponsor, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. You can check out their catalogue online at organiccatalogue.com. You'll find a complete range of organic gardening products, from seeds and plants to equipment. Have a look at their latest offer on the Tomato Grow Bag Collection. It's at organiccatalogue.com. And don't forget, if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. Now, I can't believe that, unfortunately, we're still recording this remotely. I'm sure that someday soon we'll be able to change that. But we can join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Morning, Chris. How are you? Morning, Sarah. Very good. How are you? Actually, I'm very well, given that it's February. And I have to say, February is not my favourite month. (laughs) I don't think it's anyone's. I'm looking out the window and it's looking very dank. Is that a good it's, Scottish word for you? Dreek, dreek, that's the uh, word. Actually, no, there is something nice about February, and I'll tell you what it is. February has candle mass. Do you know about candle mass? Yeah, I, I'm not, I've heard of it, but I'm not overly familiar with it. Oh, it's a very sweet ceremony where you light candles against the darkness. Oh, it's just lovely. It's uh, good for the soul. My thing is definitely uh, low winter sun. As a look, you get all these beams and shafts of light, and it's. Oh, I just think it's absolutely wonderful. So there's always an upside, isn't there, Sarah? Always. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the <laughs> other thing that I think lifts a gardener's spirit in February is you can start thinking quite seriously now about sowing seeds. And I have to emphasize it's much too early to sow them outdoors. The ground hasn't warmed up yet. But I think, Chris, we can start sowing indoors. What, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I've already started, Sarah. I'm itching to get going, it really. But I put in my chilies and my aubergines. I always start them nice and early and I'll keep them in the flat on the windowsill and I'll nurture them and uh, when they'll, they'll go out not it'll be a long time off before I'll put them out but it's a good time to sun so you've got nice string, strong plants for later on yeah and I thought actually it might be a good idea to do a very simple step-by-step sowing guide I'll tell you why because I think there's something very odd about sowing seeds in that we're all a little bit nervous of it I think it's though that gardeners uh, there's a sort of mystique about it and yet seed sowing is so simple nature does it gets it right every time yeah. So why are we gardeners so scared of it? Perhaps it would be an idea if we broke it down into very simple steps and then we know it's going to work. Sounds good to me. The important thing to say about seed sowing is when you get it right, you're going to be addicted to gardening the rest of your days. Oh, so, so true. It's just one of those things that gets you through the door. OK, Chris, so let's do it step by step, shall we? Yes, the first thing I'll do, Sarah, is I'll make sure my propagators are nice and clean. I always use propagators. I've invested a few over the years. They last me many, many years as well. So I like that they're heated, so I get quick germination. So I get a bit of warm water, a bit of fairy liquid in the sink, and my nice old clean, so they're nice and sterilised and ready for using. 
Okay, so you've got your fancy propagators, Chris. I'm much more low-key. I actually reuse the plastic fruit tubs. You know that you get from supermarkets when you buy some tomatoes or or whatever. I find they work really well. They've got drainage holes in the bottom. You're reusing plastic that otherwise would have gone into landfill. And it works just as good. But I do put them in a tray because otherwise you'll find to your cost that when you put them on the windowsill and you water them, the water comes dribbling through onto your windowsill excellent that's a good bit of recycling and then i would think the next thing i would do is i would get my seed compost it really got to emphasize here because it drains really well no peat in it obviously that's a must for us it's very low in nutrient and it's a specific seed compost isn't it it's not just a multi-purpose one again i go a little bit old school i use my own homemade mix so i get loam from the garden that's just ordinary earth in fact if you listen to last month's podcast you'll hear about how i scoop up the mold hills and what I do is I sterilize that earth and this sounds bonkers but I put it in the oven and I bake it for about a quarter of an hour 20 minutes at quite a high temperature and that will take out all the weed seeds it'll kill them off then I mix that with a bit of sieved leaf mold that I've got hanging around in a bag from a couple of years ago and I've got this very nice light mix which seeds will very happily germinate in and more importantly their little tiny roots will be able to penetrate quite easily. Yeah, it's all about that seed le- le- uh, meeting the least resistance when it germinates. You get the radical, the root and the plumiole, which then break out of the seed, and that wants to be as smooth as possible. I think what I like to do as well is I'll fill my seed tray up and then I'll use what I call is a tamper, okay? And a tamper is just, it could be a piece of wood that is flat. And then what I'll do is I will gently sieve over the top of that compost with a sieve and then gently firm it down with a tamper. So I've got a, a very, very flat even surface so this means when i put the seed in all of it will be touching the compost properly and that will make sure i get an even germination <laughs> i like to do what i call snake the seed and what i do is i start on the left hand side i go up and i come down again across and i gradually go left to right that, that gives me an even distribution across the surface and then i'll get a sieve again and i'll sieve over the top of those seeds to cover them up because not all seeds like to be buried some like to be in the light poppy for example so just read the back of the packet Make sure your seeds like to be covered, okay? As far as depth goes, I tend to have a rough rule, two-thirds the size of the seed. So it's not deep. Say if it's a one-millimetre seed, I'll go three millimetres over the top of that seed, okay? That's just a rough rule. Some people do half and half, one millimetre, two millimetre, but you just got a lovely, nice covering over the top that blocks out the light. That'll break the, break the stratification, break the, uh, the dormancy of the seed and get it to germinate. And then that's it. I'll finish off my job before I water. I'll just get that tamper over the top of that sieve soil, it makes sure it's nice and flat and even for even germination. I guess what you're doing then, Chris, is you're making sure with your tamper, you're making sure that the seed has contact with the compost, aren't you? So that it actually has something to grow into. And of course, the watering is crucial because that's what's going to kick the seed into life. I have to admit, I do my watering a little bit earlier before I put the seeds in. And I do this because the number of times that I've watered after I've sown the seeds and they all come whooshing up and sit on the surface and look at me. (laughs) Well, I've got a little trick to stop that happening. So I like to work in the dry. So what I'll do is I'll take the seed tray outside. I'll get a watering can with a rose on it. okay, and I'll turn the rose upside down. So the, the rose is facing upwards. I'll tip my watering can away from the tray. You get this upright, lovely shower of water coming from the rose. I'll go over the seed tray, back over it again, and then lift it back up away from the seed tray. And it just gets lovely, even watering, no washing of seeds. All your beautiful work is not undone, and they have a decent drink. 
Lovely tip. Thank you, Chris. I'll remember that. I'll try it even. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got lots in our post bag later on about seed sowing, about what might go wrong or queries that people have about sowing seeds. So hang on till the end of the podcast. That's been really helpful, Chris. Thank yeah. you. I hope it's been clear as well. Come Once you get it right, you'll not fail. You really won't fail. I will just add one thing to that, which is quite important. If you're doing a lot of seed, I'll have two, three thousand seedlings in the flat come May. Make sure you label. Just make sure you label and date your seeds. And that way you won't get confused to what's going on. So true. Chris, while we're talking about potting mixes, you did mention that it's a good idea to have specifically seed potting compost that's right isn't it not the general purpose one when you go down that garden center and you'll see this what tends to happen is they'll do three three bags for a tenner sort of deal especially diy stores and stuff be careful that for one is that normally they'll be full of peat okay so we want to avoid that but also they're not going to give you the results with a seed germinating any kind of multi-purpose it's just they're built for potting on other jobs okay the seed compost is really really worth the investment it is low nutrient and it drains really really well so don't skimp is my advice on this completely do not skimp if you want to be very successful at seed sowing make sure you get a peat-free seed compost And I do think it's worth spending that little bit extra because these are your babies. You want to look after them. If you are a mindful buyer, then check the labels on the bags. Reduced peat means there's still peat in there. And sometimes it's as much as 90%. I mean, it's shocking that how the industry will still be peddling peat. And ignore claims of not from an environmentally sensitive site. All peat bogs are sensitive sites and sensitive habitats. We just don't need to degrade them and dig the peat out of them. And finally, if you see the word organic, it doesn't necessarily mean peat free, I'm afraid. Organic, in this instance, it just means something is living, i.e. the compost is made from living material. It might still have peat in it. So just bear all those things in mind when you're hunting through the bags. You will have to pay some more for a peat-free compost. But because there's been good research put into peat-free growing media, I think it's a very good rule of thumb. Probably the more you pay, the better it is. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Absolutely. And I think that we need to debunk this myth that peat-free compost doesn't do the same job. And that might have been a little bit true 20, 25 years ago, because it's just not true now. I, I, on my balcony, peat-free seed compost, I get brilliant germination across the board. I then use a peat-free potting compost in my baskets, in my tubs. I've had amazing results the last three years since I moved into this property. It really is just a myth. There's no reason for us to be using peat at this time. If you want to make your own mix like I do, there's lots of information on the Garden Organic website. And there you can find oh all sorts of information about all the different composts you can make at the, all the different stages of a plant's life. And there's also a list of our courses there. And there is a particular course on composting. It's a webinar and it's held in March. So go have a look if you want to brush up on your composting skills. Okay, Chris, so we're still indoors. What else will you be doing apart from sowing seeds? Well, I am going through my rather extensive houseplant collection at the moment. I like to also propagate in over the next couple of months. So I take softwood cuttings from the fleshier houseplants like coleus. There's a brilliant plant called Plectranthus, which grows like bilio. If you want to fill a corner quickly, that's a great plant. Papyrus is another brilliant one. Pop them into a glass of water, put them on the windowsill. Two weeks time, you'll see all these lovely white roots come out and you can just pop them off and you're away. When it comes to potting composts, most houseplants are rainforest, jungle plants, if you like. They grow in open leaf litter conditions 
in, in a organic debris, if you like. So I have a special potting mix I use. Seven parts peat-free compost, two parts bark, fine chopped up bark, and then I use one part loam. The loam helps retain nutrient a bit, and that makes for a nice open compost. You can take cuttings as well, things like ficus benjamina, the weeping fig, you see that everywhere. Take a little cutting of that, about 10 centimetres long. Just get an old pot, a bit of potting compost that drains well, pop it in there, put a plastic bag over it with a couple of stakes, a few air holes, that'll root out in a few weeks. That's fantastic, Chris. And I really like the idea that you are propagating from your house plants. It, it's the truly sustainable way to go. Yeah. Wow, what lovely gifts to be giving people. Exactly. I mean, I'm always grazing them, if you like, for cuttings and giving them away. And then obviously people come to you and give you cuttings as well. I have to mention, though, my little genius idea. You know, you get these sort of lights that come off the ceiling that make patterns and stuff. So oh, yeah. I, I, I got you, one you of those. disco balls. Yeah, it's like a disco thing. I've got one of those and it's green. I've got the house plant hallway which is full of house plants some proper little jungle so i put one of those in there i've got rainforest noises on it so in the night time <laughs> i turn my light on i put my rainforest noises on i've got my own nighttime jungle it's absolutely superb oh that's such a lovely image <laughs> i love it okay let's tear you away from your own little jungle because actually there are some days in February when it's good to get out maybe it's cold and frosty or maybe you just want the fresh air I think there's also some jobs to be done outside I know that I'm still on my winter pruning I've got a hedge that needs cutting back before the birds start nesting in it I've got roses that need pruning and I've got a willow tree that needs to be cut right back down so it can sprout again so that's my keeping warm and enjoying February out doors what about you yeah, it's a good idea to be pruning this time of year you can also see the structure of plants can't you nice and clearly deciduous ones like roses but i'm uh, a big raspberry lover i love raspberries and obviously if you buy them probably full-on chance that they're going to have been sprayed in a lot of pesticides so i'd rather eat fresh organic so i'm putting up some raspberry cane sort of fencing really if you like so i will put two posts in about two meters apart two and a half meters apart then i run some wire across with vine eyes and tighten it up. That's six of those. So you can imagine two posts, six layers of wire running down. And then I fan my raspberries onto that. And that makes them really easy to prune. It makes them more easily be manageable because they can start running and getting carried away. And then I can just cut out the old stems, train in the new ones. And hopefully, Sarah, I'll have some organic raspberries. Great. I guess also having that structure for your raspberries to grow against will help prevent any wind damage as well. Yes. And now your favourite bit. Give us your plant of the month. Well, I'm going to go overseas for this one. I know we like to shop local, but uh, um, our plant collections in this country come from all over the world. I'm going to choose an American plant called Umbelaria californica, which is a big evergreen shrub with a sort of bluey, sort of greeny tinge to it. I call it a bouncer plant. And then a lot of people ask me what that means, I suppose. But it's, it's a good sort of border filler. And where other plants, you can plant around it. You can make it a sort of a centrepiece, or you can put it in a corner, you fill a nasty corner up next to a door. And what I really like about it is if you get the leaves and you crush them, it's got like this amazing sort of german leaning smell to it. Really nice. Okay, give us the name again, Chris. Umbelaria californica. Okay, I'll look out for it, because I think it's always nice to have that something solid in the border order that offsets everything else the bouncer plant the bouncer plant (laughs) now we really are going back to your disco days aren't we (laughs) we thanks chris thank you happy seed sign everyone you know there's plenty of advice on seed sowing making potting composts and how to adapt to peat free growing if you look at the garden organic website that's gardenorganic.org.uk and share with us your successes at gardenorganic.uk now 
I recommend you sit back and enjoy our guests this month. Chris spent time with Debs Goodenough, who gave us a rare interview about her gardening life. She is perhaps best known as head gardener at Highgrove, Prince Charles's house in Gloucestershire. Her quiet, unassuming manner belies someone who not only has abundant knowledge of organic growing, but who's been able to translate this into a very public arena. We catch up with her and her life after Highgrove in her own cottage garden on the Isle of Wight. Hello everybody, I'm very privileged today to be sat with Debs Goodenough, who is a garden with a massive history, some of it very regal, is that right to say Debs? Oh that's kind of you to say, it's, it's been an exciting career that I've had and uh, it's lovely to have you here Chris. Thank, oh, thank you. you, I'm on the Isle of Wight by the way to the listeners, this is where I'm in a beautiful cottage where, where Debs live and she's uh, very kindly picked me up from the ferry and I don't think we've stopped talking since have we really? I don't think we have, <laughs> about, about all sorts, but mostly horticulture. Yeah all horticulture, that's right, we you put two gardens together and off we go. I suppose the place to start really is it's just your background, because you're, you're Canadian, aren't you, by origin? That's right. I, I grew up on a, a very small farm in Canada. We were never, ever hungry. We didn't have a lot of money. My mother had a huge garden and mostly vegetables to take us through the winter. Uh, my dad was, a, uh, when I look back at it, he was an organic farmer, because mm-hmm. that's how it was back then. We had, we had cows, pigs, sheep, chickens, um, and but the veg was just uh, was my mum's domain. For the winter, she would put up so many preserves that it was just incredible when I think back on it, how many jars we filled. And I, I do laugh, my, my mother, she used to wash plastic bags out. We were talking back in the 60s and 70s, and we used to laugh at her as kids, but, you know, it's, this thing, this is a valuable product, yeah. we're going to use it and reuse it and reuse it. And we used to have plastic bags hung on our, our, our <laughs> yeah, clothesline yeah, yeah. Uh, because we're a farm and we had lots of produce coming in and we would just reuse everything. So you're very much in your blood then, this whole oh. being near nature, is very close to the soil. Absolutely. I mean, I look back on uh, where we farmed, but also, you know, we've got uh, blueberry picking out, 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 in, out in the wilderness, which is really lovely. I didn't think of it then. I, and I remember taking my husband back there and he said, you lived all the way out here. There's nothing here. And I said, there's lots here. Yeah. <laughs> but you have gone then from this huge country uh, with this massive landscape and wilderness to, to the UK, which is a small country, very packed. How did that come about? Well, circuitously, uh, uh, trained in Canada in horticulture, and uh, one of my tutors had come over to Kew. Uh, and I said, oh, I'd really like to go and do that and do a bit of training and travel. They said, oh, no, no, you'd never be able to get into Kew because no Canadian's ever gone and trained at Kew. And that was like... A, that was, a, that uh, was, was that, I'm going to do this. I'm yeah. going to do this. And so uh, I came over as an international student in 1984 and planned to spend a year here, but it, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago, that was 35 years ago. So you, somehow you ended up putting down roots here? Well, it was uh, cute and it was fairly early on. I met my husband, Simon, who is oh. uh, another horticulturalist. And, you know, when you get two gardeners together, that's uh, a life made in heaven. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Couldn't put it better. Yeah. So you so you do time at Q and then you've had a sustained career since then. Do you want to just talk and guide me through what you've done since? Um, well, I followed my husband. He became curator at uh, Ventnor Botanic Gardens and uh, I was the propagator nursery manager there for 10 years working with him. That was fabulous, setting up a local botanic garden, community base, set up volunteers. But after 10 years working there, I took on the restoration at uh, Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Osborne uh, House. Can you explain a little bit about Osborne House? Osborne House is an amazing historic property uh, built 
by Prince Albert for him and his queen and their wonderful growing family. And it was amazing what he did and how he developed the garden there. It was a really interesting learning curve because I didn't really like bedding plants, to be honest. <laughs> but they that was at the height of the sort of bedding period. And I thought, well, actually, with my skill in botanics and growing a lot of interesting plants let's let's take this to a different level let's mm. let's make the bedding really exciting as it would have been in the victorian times and i had the scope to do that so i had a really great team there and we did some really fun displays and i think they're carrying them on today Still in now yeah, yeah. I, i've obviously been a parksman originally i yeah. appreciate a bit of bedding Debs, oh. and, <laughs> see that's quite interesting so you went from so then it was a development project in a way you were building yes. something there propagation and then you've gone to what would be i suppose more of a restoration, is that, is that fair Restor to say? Restoration, and, uh, but also sort of looking at the whole landscape. Uh, the estate had reduced down from 2,000 acres down to about 300, but it had a wonderful woodland. Yeah, I've got, yeah, yeah. So I had a really good introduction into how to manage different uh, meadowscapes by just different cutting regimes. Let the grass grow long, get the local schools in to plant native daffodils, mow around the edges, and actually start talking through what you're doing that much. I should imagine then that you're quite pioneering because all of this is a fad now. Everybody does this and everyone talks about it. But that, at that time, it would have been not so usual, would it? I had a lot of people questioning my sanity. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed bringing in the school children to plant daffodils because uh, we were planting the wild daffodil and so they were learning numeracy mm. by they had to put five bulbs in each hole and then jump on them five times and this is reception class and then introduce them to being part of their own community is that they will bring their their families back in 10, 15 years mm. to see what they did. And with the kids, it's legacy, isn't it? Mm. Because they, they, they will remember that. And it was there also that I started uh, be becoming more and more organic in my outlook. Uh, you know, training in horticulture back in the, the 80s. Chris, you probably remember. You had, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, your courses on chemicals and all that sort of stuff. And it was the case of we saw some pretty horror stories mm. back then where things were just not good. Um and so at Osborne, I had one area that we kept completely organic, mm. and that was the children's plots, which I thought that had to be like. And then throughout the sort of rest of the garden, we very much minimised any sort of chemical use and just looked at composting. I made the most amazing compost at Osborne. And Go on, tell me about the compost. <laughs> oh, well, when I first started there, they were paying someone to take away the waste and then buying compost in. Crazy. You know, 300 acres? Yeah. You know, like... This is just crazy. So I said, look, I need £10,000. And that was a lot of money to set up composting scheme. And so I built some big bays. And I said, look, I can make this recoup the money that you're spending in three years. And in three years, we you were... did that. That's an incredible. It's a good point because it, the idea that you're, by being organic and composting, like you're, you're giving something away. Actually, it's in-house. It actually saves money. It saves oh. time, saves labour. You know, you're not importing it from foreign countries. It's really interesting. But I suppose as well, that basis of your organic is they're now coming down to the soil and how you look after the soil. That's that's absolutely it, right, Chris. <laughs> yeah. mm. Well, that sounds amazing. It really does. Uh, but obviously, there's another step to your career, the next step, which is uh, I'm sure everyone's going to be interested in. That's when you go off to work well, for the future King of England. That's right. And uh, that was a moment in time in, in the family's history when uh, 
uh, I was uh, asked to uh, apply for the position at, at Highgrove. I remember uh, our youngest son, who was 16 at the time, and I, when I was sort of pondering it, he said, what have you got to ponder, Mum? This is the future King of England. Duh, Mum, really, really? Is this something? And so uh, at that time, it was, it, was, it was a big decision for me, but it was a case of I left home and uh, left my husband on the island right. and uh, went to Highgrove. And that was the most amazing journey of my life and uh, one that I would never regret. That's incredible. And I suppose if I was listening to this, I would be tempted to ask, what's it like working for the food economy? I know we cannot say too much about it, but... it's it, The thing that I'd like to say is that, you know, working for someone that that's... Gardening is his passion. Mm-hmm. You know, organic gardening, the soils, talking the language that you and I, Chris, are talking yeah. about right now and uh, just keen to promote that. So... Um, it, you know, it was just so exciting. And, and, and I think, again, uh, at uh, Highgrove, there was projects to be had and to be done. And, you know, my, my little brain was uh, well engaged to all the, all the work that needed to be done. And, uh, you know, at Highgrove, there were always the, the, there were the weed problems and how you tackle that. And it was at the time when His Royal Highness wanted to encourage more visitors in. And so um, there was a complexity of trying to keep it a very private garden, keep it organic, mm. but in, and, and increase the number of visitors to come and see that organic approach. That was a really interesting sort of mix and use of my skills to sort of make that work. Make that happen, yeah, because mm. he's very keen to let people see as well. Mm. It's, um, so it's not just a TV persona, that's interesting, because we obviously see the lights of... Prince Charles on the telly, and it, but underneath it, he has these awareness and he has these skills, and he's interested in developing his own garden. That's an important point to make, isn't it? Oh, it's so important. I mean, the number of times I got told off by the chauffeurs because his Royal Highness would be taking an extra time in the garden, telling me he, you know, things that he wanted to have mm. done, and uh, it was a case of he might have been late a few times because <laughs> of that. But uh, it's the aspect of just so keen interested and you know that that garden is so important to his royal house and just to get that message out to people well i suppose he does have that that privileged position of being able to say the word so it's nice to know that he's, t- he's taking it that seriously isn't it and because there's a lot of cynicism in the world isn't there so it's nice to know he's that you know he has that honesty that honest approach to it you know and he he, he started way back when and nobody was listening and <laughs> yeah. it's just so nice that it's actually come round that uh you know people are saying well actually we should have listened uh, he was ahead of his time oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah and i like the idea do you stroll around the garden with him in the morning there if the chauffeur's waiting and you, while you chat what you're going to do for the day or do for the week or well, do for the... you know there was the, there's the list of things that you know i knew that needed to be done but also the projects and the, mm. and, and the things and, and his royal highness has a, a very artistic eye so it's a case of getting that vision of what he wanted to see really important and uh, you know he's got a good eye really good because right, he's a painter and stuff oh, as well isn't he fantastic and you know i've learned so much from his royal highness mm. and uh, you know i just wanted to make sure that we gave him the garden that he was looking for Brilliant, that's amazing. Yeah. And, then, and I, mean, I, I was there recently, and it, I mean, it's quite an intense garden, isn't it? There's a lot of sculpture, there's all this kind of, you know, there's a lot of topiary, mm-hmm. there's like a stumpery, yeah, that's mm-hmm. quite, so you've got these kind of really quite a lot going on in it, and it's very compartmentalised. Did you, did you find that overwhelming at times? It's one of those ones that, uh, um, you know, developed a very good team there, and that's always important, yeah. to have a team that... Uh, really pulling for what his royal highness wanted i mean people can be individual gardeners and that doesn't always work when you've got a team that you need to make mm. the, the that balance is quite important to get the whole mm. working and so that was helpful that i had you know had a good team behind me the element of you know it, it can be overwhelming mm. if you look at it just from the outside 
But as a, as a horticulturalist, you know, you've got the seasons, you know what's needed, you know, you've got the backing of the person that wants it to happen. And it was a case of uh, just getting the time programs in, in place to have that, that work. But the thing that you're saying about it is it is a very intense garden. Mm. And what what's really exciting about Highgrove is there's, you've, got, you've got the formality about there's, there's, there's certain things that uh, his Royal Highness loves topiary, he loves mm. delphiniums, he loves uh, a certain plant uh, groups, and that they're very intensive to sort of maintain. But on the other side, you've got the sort of naturalistic meadow uh, organic side of it that um, I think is a great juxtaposition because it makes the formal more formal and the uh, natural more... It's almost like a yin and yang, isn't it? Is, it's it is. the way the two... I, I've always believed that, you know, it can't it doesn't have to be one or the other, does it? It doesn't have to be just lawn or just long grass mm-hmm. meadow. You can fuse these two mm-hmm. worlds together with a massive impact and high, high growth achieves that, I think, doesn't it? It does, it does. And uh, His Royal Highness always, you know, on his travels would come back with another idea. And <laughs> it was it, so many times he said, I'm not sure if you're going to like this idea and <laughs> Uh, you know, it's going to be an extra work, but you know, it's a case by I like that. I'm a, I'm a, mm. I'm a practical gardener, yeah. and I like to make things work. So my my job was to take his ideas and and deliver them to him in the garden, so that they actually uh, worked on the ground. And there are times when uh, we tried things. I mean, the, the one that I always laugh about, he wanted a moss garden, and so we, you know, I did all the research. We got the place, got it all set up, had this wonderful crop of moss. I went in, it was uh, in sort of early spring, and, and it was a case of the moss had been stripped. And I went, <laughs> what's going on? And then we realised that the birds had made And they really, they just come and take it all. <laughs> and his Royal Highness just laughed. He said, well, there we go. You know, and he loves his birds. So he just thought it was just so hilarious. It sounds like it's a very relaxed attitude to it all. Well, you know, it was, it was a case of, you know, we did our best and we did yeah. really, really well. So, some you win, some you lose. Yeah, <laughs> well, the birds won anyway. The birds won. And he, he just thought that was really funny. So we just changed the garden. <laughs> It is a it's a never ending journey of, of learning, isn't it? I suppose so you yeah. think you try stuff and it doesn't yeah. go on. But you were, I mean, you're very famous for your organic practices there. How did that did that obviously that a passion that grew in you when you went to Highgrove, or was it already there from uh, your time Osborne? I think that uh, it, it's it's always been there innately in me, and I just you know you just you just don't want to go down the route of chemicals, mm. um, and uh, you know it's just one of those ones. I don't even think about it now, Chris, because yeah. that's kind of how you live. You kind of go well. I don't need to use chemicals. I don't need to sort of, you know, there's a few aphids, so what? You know, look at the the, the ladybirds that are going to come and follow. Or, uh, you know, I'm I'm finding here in, in, in our little garden that we've got here is just how many more trees and shrubs we've planted, how many more birds we've got. I mean, uh, this this morning it was just a, a large woodpecker just outside the door. And I said, I haven't seen that before. You know, that's, mm. I was so excited, you know. Um, so you're seeing it as a, like all good organic gardens, it's a shared space to use, you, you know, that fact that everything's welcome in it. it well, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Within reason, yeah. Oh, I know we're the slugs and the snails. Well, we've got a bit of a parakeet problem on our, a lot oh, in London at the moment, and so, yeah, you, there's always a challenge there somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. Gosh, what sort of problems do parakeets cause? Well, they, they eat, they've been boring into the apples. That's one of the oh. things they do, yeah. They, they kind of go for the fruit. If you don't net your raspberries, <laughs> forget it, like okay. so, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Foxes is another challenge, I suppose, but oh. they, uh, but they, I don't, they don't bother me. Maybe some other people, but it, it, this is, I mean, you touched it already. You make this sacrifice that you know this is my growing space. I always find I come out on top, so there are there is a little bit of collateral damage, but I'm not 
completely out of the game because of it. Is that true to say when you have an organic site? Yeah, I, I mean, the thing that's uh, quite interesting is I... I have relaxed an awful lot in mm. the way I garden. When I was at Osborne, it was very meticulous because the Victorians mm. kept everything edges tight. Everything was sort of weed-free and it was really meticulous and focused on that. Uh, going to Highgrove, the odd weed here and there really wasn't... It's, it, you sort of take a softer approach. Uh, you know, you don't want hard edges on your paths. You know, my job wasn't worth it if I took the, the grass out of the middle of the road. That was to be there to make it just, just soften everything. Yeah. Uh, we didn't say the C word, concrete. <laughs> it wasn't a word that we spoke about at Highgrove. You know, it's, uh, you, know you, you really wanted to make everything as soft as possible. And that's kind of the approach I'm, I'm more and more going that way. And I'm always looking at uh, how much bit farther can I go with that? Yeah. And uh, uh, this year, my husband, uh, he decided that he could, he could cope with it if I took the, the, the concrete strip up in the drive and put it down to grass. Right. And it's made just such a difference. You know, just it just softens the look as you come up the drive. I think that's what we are as gardeners. We are here to soften the world, aren't we? That's, oh, that's kind of why I look at it in a way. Soften the edges. Yeah, yeah. soften, just, light, just ease it up a bit. Yeah. Um, but So if you, like, obviously our listeners are all... Um, organic gardeners some of them will be very experienced some of them will be there's a lot of new people starting out we've said at the moment apparently during lockdown we've inherited 3 million people who are now gardening that weren't doing Fantastic. it before if you were going to uh, garden organic is there certain, I mean like your kitchen garden at Highgrove was just astounding I just yeah. love that so what would be your tips for them what, what are the priorities do you think for an organic gardener soil That's number one absolutely yeah. Composting, you know, I I just love. Co- I mean, what gardener doesn't love composting? <laughs> and what can you compost? And what can't you compost? And how you deal with compost? I mean, I'll show you around and uh, show you my composting areas. I have short term, long term, very long term composting areas because then how I deal with sort of the weed problems and uh, what are weeds? I mean, it, it's a matter subjective, isn't yeah. it? If you fits there for you. And so you mentioned long um, compost. So you've got compost for all occasions, one Sam. I do. So you so long compost where you're doing it cold composting, and then you. Have have hot composting for quicker turnover or uh, not too much hot composting right. because the uh, back can't cope with it anymore Chris <laughs> and it's a case of I turn I turn a couple of yeah. uh, uh, compost bins uh, once or twice but that's about it and then there's somewhere you know what do you do with the bindweed and what do you do with mm. the the mare's tail where do you go that so we've got a heap that is long term I mean it's five six years before we actually will get to the And that will take out your, your, your um, bind weed and your... Oh, yeah. yeah. But the, the key there is putting it in a place where it's easy access. And I think that's the one thing that a lot of people do is put their compost area in a place that you... It's the farthest away. You never get there. So you, you try and make it as easy as possible. Mm. Uh, and so I've got buckets around where I can drop things into it. And then I've got... Uh, we've got about three or four different composting points where they're not huge areas of composting, but it, it just works for us. Yeah. And, uh, but it's a case of to have the space to do it. You know, when uh, first started out, uh, two little children, we had uh, a little wormery box in the kitchen. You know, we had a tiny little kitchen and there was this worms and, and every once in a while the worms would escape. And, you know, the kids <laughs> thought that was fantastic. Uh, but it was just great. You know, you, you start with what you, where you sure. can and what you, what you can do. So it's almost like you've got stations dotted around the exactly, place. Exactly. That's a really interesting yeah. tip, yeah. I mean, you know, it sounds like we've got a grand property. It isn't huge, Chris, but it's a case of, you know, you kind of... Yeah, we've gardened every bit we possibly can. Yeah. And the other aspect that I always say is that 
you've got to have an area that's your working area. We've got this little tiny courtyard that, you know, most people would put a hot tub in. What have I put in there? I've put in a potting bench <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's my compost mixing station so that I can actually uh, do the work, you know. And, and, and that's actually nice because it's just outside the kitchen and, I, you know, you, you, it's right there and I can, can't get away from it. And it's nice. So I'm interested because uh, both of us were, were talking about propagation before and uh, how important it is. That's quite important, do you think, to uh, to an organic grower? The fact you're producing plants locally, whether it be seed, you know, heritage varieties, that kind of thing, cuttings from local stuff, which would be more adapted to your garden. Do you think that's an important part of the organic garden? It's very, very important. And uh, as a garden, we all like to share as well. So uh, it's the the aspect of, you know, you can always swap plants like that. Yeah. And, uh, and it's important you're passing that knowledge you have, this incredible knowledge down to the next generation and I know what you mean Chris but I have to say I have a lot of faith in the younger generation mm. and I think there's so many people that really want to connect with growing and earth forces uh, I have a lot of uh, positivity about the younger generation and uh, you're going to get fed up with IT and Facebook and Twitter and things like that you're proving my point all gardeners are optimists the glass oh. is always half full isn't it I just want one more thing I would um, say that I think when I'm, um, about practicing organic practices the thing I always come across with people who are not so skilled guys is the pest of disease. They all tend to worry about that. And I remember being at Highgrove and your kitchen garden was immaculate. Do you have a few tips on, you know, you mentioned slugs earlier. How do you combat that kind of thing? We did all sorts in the sense of, you know... We Give tried, me a quick rundown. You know, you know, <laughs> uh, beer traps and uh-huh. uh, slates and things like that and just being on top of it. But also then you, you, have, you, you can have your sort of sacrificial plants right. that you think well they can have those it's like everybody said our hostas were so fantastic at high grove and when you look at it we were growing the big leafed forms uh which are not that tasty to slugs and snails they go for the little leaf forms first so you grow the bigger ones and um you know you have your sacrificial stuff that they might go for but it's a case of we just got to learn to live with it yeah grow a bit more so you think that maybe it's a, it's a multi-pronged attack isn't it is that oh, yeah. is that it's not just like a beer trap just when you put a bit of beer in a cup that will do some yeah. your birds will do some more frogs that's maybe right. more so you need to think about it holistically that's right and uh you know if you're growing things like delphiniums i mean the slugs yeah, I absolutely say, yeah. love them it's how you maintain them and you don't have them growing uh, in a group with myosotis around it, for example, you know, forget me not, and that looks lovely because you know the uh, the delphiniums come later. But those uh, forget me nots will sort of uh, add, be the cover for the slugs that are going to eat your delphiniums. So you actually have to do a little bit of okay, we're going to keep the delphiniums actually clear of anything out, any foliage around them, so that there we can see what's happening. Well, I'm going to bring us back up to date because I'm I'm, I'm looking out. This is so beautiful here. Oh. Uh, there's a really nice garden out there, and I'm going to get a tour of it in a minute. So you, you, this is this is now your baby, is it? Your own garden, or what are you up to now? Well, it's a case of uh, uh, we've had this property for about twenty years, and um, it's one that we uh, let out as holiday lets, and uh, uh, because we were living and working elsewhere, mm. and it's a sort of this is the first eighteen months I've lived in this house that we've owned for twenty years, and so but. From the day one when we bought the property, uh, we've been developing the garden. Planted trees virtually the first... uh, We bought the house in September and we're planting trees in the October. Uh, And that's really important. And so it's now uh, time and I'll show you what we've done. Brilliant. Two decades worth of horticulture. A high-end horticulture, I would say. Well, I look forward to listening to Deb's walking Chris around her own garden. We'll be playing it in our next episode later this month. All you have to do is make sure you press the subscribe button and then you'll be sure not to miss their chat. 
But now it's time to open the podcast post bag. But Hannah, we've got a slightly different post bag today, haven't we? We have. It's a virtual post bag. So we asked our social media followers if they had any questions that they wanted to put to us. And we've got a nice selection of seed sowing questions that we'll go through. Fantastic. Well, we're joined by Anton. Hi, Anton. Hello, Sarah. And Chris. Hi, Sarah. Okay, Hannah, off you go. Great. So the first question asks, I've always wanted to know how closely to follow the outdoor sowing times on seed packets. For example, what if you live in Inverness or in Exeter? How do they vary? Chris, can you kick us off? Well, that's a good example. Obviously, where you live in the country means that it's going to affect when you sow your outdoor seeds. Uh, Scotland's a lot colder than the south of England. So always treat it as a rough guide. Read the packet, that's important, but treat it as a rough guide, basically, and always check the weather out, maybe. Feel the soil, is the soil feeling warmish? Use the elements around you to decide, but use your seed packet as a rough guide. I think it's important to say not to jump the gun as well. I know it can be, as, as a gardener for a long time, I can get overexcited and um, sow a little bit early. You can preempt a little bit. I like to put down some fleece on my soil in March to help it warm up so I can get my salad crops in a bit early. Perfect, thank you. So on to the next question. As a bit of a hoarder, I'd love to know how much attention I should pay to the use-by dates on seed packets. Anton, what would you recommend? Okay, so these use-by dates, they're not actually like a cliff edge. It just means that the viability of the seeds will gradually decline. It also depends very much on how you stored them. Ideally, they need to be in a cool and dry place. Dry is really, really important. So keep them in a in a sealed tin. Garden sheds are not always the best place to store them because they get very hot in the summer and then very cold in the winter. So a spare unheated bedroom is actually a good place to keep your seeds. In terms of their viability, yeah, just give them a go, basically. I've got nothing to lose. Most seeds will gradually decline with time as as the age increases. There, there are one or two exceptions, parsnip seeds in particular. You do need to use fresh seeds each year. They, they really don't germinate well at all when you, when you use old parsnip seeds, even one year old uh, or two old. Anton, I really like the way you said, just give it a go. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, a packet of seeds is like the same cost as a cup of coffee. And you have quite a good germination test that you do, don't you? Yeah, if you've got plenty of seeds, germination test sounds complicated, but actually it's very Heath Robinson. You, you can get a plastic box like an old takeaway box or a margarine tub and put a couple of paper towels, lightly dampen them and put the seeds in between the paper towels and then just have a look at them each each day and they should start sort of showing their little sprouts pretty quickly. If nothing's happened after about a week, then you know that those seeds are probably not going to grow well. And that will save you sort of wasting time and wasting compost. Nice tip. Uh, Chris, are you a slave to the dates on the packets? No, I think they are a rough guide. And I think what is, is exactly as Anton describes, the viability tends to decrease over time. So you will get some germination. Like all gardeners, I hoard seed. And I and I always think I always like to try. So I had some corn salad recently. It's about four or five years old. It was out, they were out of date by two, three years. And I sowed them and I got some germination, not lots. An important thing to remember as well is I always keep mine in sealed Tupperware as well. So the air isn't getting at them and that will help keep the packets, keep the packets viable. Okay, so give them a try before you throw them away. Um, On to the next question. Do I need to soak pea seeds before sowing? I don't know if I overwater them, but they tend to go mouldy in the soil and don't germinate. Anton, what would you recommend here? Soaking or not soaking? I personally don't think there's a massive advantage to soaking. Um, We actually tried it as 
a little members experiment at Garden Organic a few years ago. And, and we found that soaking did advance how quickly they germinated, but, but not by much, only by about a day. I think what's more important is that where you're planting them, that you've got that your soil is warm enough. If you plant them into cold, wet soil, then they are very likely to end up rotting there. So I think your planting conditions are much more important. Chris, do you do anything to your pea seeds? Well, I, I agree with Anton there, really. I don't think it's wholly necessary. I, I mean, in my pea shoots, in my little indoor allotment, I put them in a my uh, recycle tray and they germinate no problem. I will say the old boys when I was on the parks many moons ago, they would chip them. You've got to be careful how you say that. I don't want any swearing <laughs> on this podcast. But there you go. You've got to chip them. And they, all they do is you get a knife and you just nick a little bit of the tester, which is the seed coat off, and that would maybe speed up germination by a little bit. Okay, but the gains are marginal, you would say, for kind of your everyday gardener, it's perhaps not worth the effort. I think so, yeah. I think that's probably about right. I think you're still going to get success without um, soaking and without chitting. And what about the second part of the questions? Seeds going mouldy in the soil and not germinating. What do you think the problem here is, Sarah? I think Anton's right. I think probably the soil isn't hasn't warmed up enough and maybe you've sown them too early. You really do need to wait until that soil feels warm in your hand. Pick it up in your hand. Does it feel ready to give life to the seed? And another good indicator of when the soil's warming up is if you start seeing the weeds really putting on growth, dandelions particularly. So don't rush into your seed sowing outdoors. I know we've talked about seed sowing indoors. That's fine to get on with even this month. But wait, a bit of patience, maybe until May, and then put your peas in. And I think they'll do jolly well then. Brilliant. Thank you. So last seed question. Can you tell me what an open pollinated seed is and how is this different to an F1 hybrid? Sarah? Okay, Hannah. So this is a question we get asked quite often, actually. And it could be complicated, but I'll keep it quite simple. An open pollinated seed is one which we pretty much imagine any seed to be. It's produced from a parent plant and it carries the parent's genetic material into the next generation of plants. It's what us gardeners call true to type. And it's called open pollinated because it's mostly natural methods which cause the pollination. That could be wind, insects, or sometimes a helping human hand. F1, however, has been deliberately created by plant breeders by crossing two different parent varieties. The breeder has created a seed which inherits the particular characteristics from these two parent plants. This could be disease resistance, for instance, or exceptional taste or size or colour. So there's a big business behind F1 seed. It's worth mentioning, perhaps, that F1 hybrid plants won't produce the next generation with the same characteristics. The whole breeding process has to be done annually. And hence, there's this multi-billion pound industry behind F1 seed production, which leads to just a very few seed companies having control of the seeds which we gardeners buy. And if you go to buy seeds from a garden centre, for instance, the chances are that you will note that most of them are F1 seeds. And there's probably only a very limited range of plant varieties that you can grow. There's just one type of cauliflower or one leek. The seed companies have decided which are most viable. They've put all their money into them. But this is at the expense of all the other what you might call old heritage varieties. The open pollinated seeds reflect hundreds of different plant varieties. So here, for instance, at the Heritage Seed Library, we have the old local heritage seeds, which otherwise would have disappeared. 
There's the Bath lettuce, for instance, the Bradford bomb cabbage and the wonderfully named early blood turnip. These are old local heritage varieties which haven't been promoted by the seed companies and haven't been turned into F1 varieties. That was quite a long answer, Hannah. Was it clear, do you think? I think I've got a follow-on question. Okay. Um, From a practical point of view of a gardener, do you treat these seeds any differently? Do you grow with an open pollinated seed the same as you would with an F1 hybrid? They're exactly the same. You wouldn't treat them any differently at all. But as I say, what happens in the next season is where the difference happens. If you saved seed from an F1 plant, it won't necessarily come true the following year. If you save the seed from an open pollinated plant, the chances are you're going to get that same parental genetic material into the following season's plants. I think if you wanted to give an ex- a good example, isn't it, of F1s reverting is aquilegia because you buy a lovely, beautiful yellow and red flash aquilegia and then it sets seed in your garden and it'll be purple the following year because it wants to go back to its natural genetic. Quite fun to try saving them, seeing what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, why not? Again, the underlying messages is just seeds are just good fun, aren't they? Great fun. Amazing fun. One of the fun things to do on the planet, I would say. That walking around in my, my tropical rainforest hallway at night. Yeah, mate, I'm made up, mate. I'm made up. Thanks ever so much, guys, and I'll see you next month. Thanks, Hannah. Bye. Bye, Hannah. Bye. Bye. Well, what a lot we've covered on seeds and seed sowing. I hope you feel inspired, but perhaps more importantly, you feel confident to give seed sowing a go yourself. Share with us your triumphs on social media. It's quite simple. We're on at gardenorganic.uk and you'll find plenty of advice and information on the Garden Organic website. That's gardenorganic.org.uk. Next month, I have the joyful time of learning about birdsong in the garden. I can't wait. It's such a sign of spring. So be sure to subscribe and join Chris and I as the growing season takes off and lifts all our hearts. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. Music.